Turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. We had a little break here in between our, our series, so I thought, well, well, we'll spend a little bit of time in Psalm 14 next week. We have a real treat for you. Kainoa will be preaching, so... Make sure you're here and ready to hear the Word of God taught and be praying for Him this week as He prepares. Um, it's not something that He takes lightly, uh, nor do I. <laughs> so we continue to pray for Him and Mariana as well, and their future child. But as we turn to the book of Psalms this morning, Psalm 14, the word psalm, just so you know, it means, uh, basically, it's a poem that is put to music. You could say they're lyrics, uh, writings inspired by God, um, but they're, they're basically songs. And, and the book of Psalms is a collection of songs. It's about 150 songs that the nation of Israel would take this entire book, and they would take it in the temple, and they would sing praises to their God. They, they would use it kind of like uh, a hymnal. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what's a hymnal? Well, in front of you, under the, the seat, there should be a hymnal. And, and if you find one, it's, it's basically a collection of hymns, church songs that churches sing, and it just makes it convenient. Uh, today, we don't use hymnals that much. Uh, we should, I think, uh, but we don't. We use the projector. It's a lot easier, and you don't have people fiddling around trying to find the words and the, the number of the hymn and all that stuff. And then we do music that's outside the hymnal as well. But maybe you didn't grow up in, in church and you didn't know what a hymnal was, so I thought I would share that with you. Um, you can kind of think of it as a playlist on Spotify. Okay, that's kind of what it is. It's, it's a collection of, of spiritual songs, you know, 10 to 15 songs, and it's, it's put together for, for people to worship with. Um, now, if you're here this morning, you're like, Spotify, what, is that a disease? What is that? Well... Remember the cassette? Remember you used to be able to make your own playlist on your cassette? You know, you'd take the record and you record it to the cassette and then you could take that with your Walkman and you could listen to it at the gym or whatever and you'd have 10 or 15 of the songs on the cassette. Um, and if you're looking at me and going, I don't know what a cassette is, well, you know, think of the jukebox, okay? We're kind of going back in history here. The jukebox, you know, you'd go into a restaurant, they'd have a jukebox and they'd have all the records in there and you could put the thing and you could put up a playlist. You could pay for it and, and you'd sit there to you eat your meal and you would hear the list of songs. That's kind of what this is. Um, 
If you don't know what a jukebox is, then someone should take your keys because you shouldn't be driving, but that's beside the point. Uh, you know, don't get mad. I'm just joking, just joking. You know, don't send me an email. Uh, well, you probably wouldn't send me an email. You'd probably send me a letter because I don't know what an email is, but that's okay. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, but let's get back to Psalm 14, okay? Psalm 14. My wife's probably going, what is he doing? We want to spend some time in Psalm 14 because it's full, full of some practical stuff. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, or if you're familiar at all with Scripture, you're probably familiar with the first verse of Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, A fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Right? How many of you have heard? You've all heard that, probably. More than likely. But I bet you don't really know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey, the late Paul Harvey used to say. Um, and so we're going to dig into this passage, and we're going to find what David, and it's a psalm of David, what he's communicating to us, because I think it's very practical. He says, a fool has says in his heart, there is no God. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, that's not for me, because I've been born in the church. I was born in the church. I've been coming to church for years. I go to church every week. Well, you know what? I want you to understand something. I think this is going to be a little more relevant to you than you actually realize, this message today. And so it's a psalm of David because I want us to really dial in and pay attention because this is for all of us. And so let's, let's stand in, in honor of God's word and I'm going to read through Psalm 14 and then we'll pray and you can have a seat. This is the introduction they have to the choir master of David. So it's a psalm of David. It's a, a song that they used to sing. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. They have no knowledge. All are all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts today in a very practical way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now again, remember this whole psalm, the whole book of psalms, are, they're actually songs. And this is the, the nation of Israel would take it into the temple and they would sing, they would lift it up to God, then their voices would resonate these words throughout the temple and throughout the people. And it's all about God and the fool. That's what this psalm is really about. And you could maybe say, well, you know what? This isn't really relevant to me because I am not that foolish and I don't think I'm a fool. Um, well, let's dig in and we'll see how this might apply to us. Uh, and I want to break it down and you have the outline there, basically four points. And first of all, David here is talking about the defiant heart in fools that there's a defiant heart in someone who is a fool. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Now, if you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably heard a lot of sermons on that verse. And you've probably heard that verse used to kind of say, yeah, you know, all those atheists out there, those intellectual atheists, they're just fools. Look at these people. The Bible calls them fools. They're fools because they don't believe in God. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that a lot. Um, I would tell you today, this morning, that's not what this is referring to. That's not what this means. And so we want to discover what this really means. In fact, in some translations, and I don't know what translation you have, I have the ESV, and it says there is no God. Um, if, you, if you have the New King James, you notice the words there is, they're in italics. And whenever they put something in italics in a Bible, it means it's not really there in the original transcript. They just kind of put it in so it's easier for us to read. So in some translations, that, that some manuscripts has there is, that's in italics because it's not really there in the original Hebrew. So you could read it technically. You could read the verse this way. The fool says in his heart, no, God. <laughs> Big difference. Big difference. The fool says in his heart, no God, or no God for me, or, or let there be no God. And see, what we translate it in our English, there is no God, we think, oh, he's talking about intellectual atheism. The people who don't believe in God. And that's how so many people apply this verse. What does the intellectual atheist say? The intellectual atheist is the one who's convinced in his own mind there is no God. This has nothing whatsoever to do with intellectual atheism. This verse, nothing. David is not talking about intellectual atheism here. What he is talking about is practical atheism. Practical atheism. He's not talking about the one who doesn't believe in the existence of God. He's talking about the one who with their behavior, believes there is no God. Big difference. Practical atheism, if you're saying what exactly is that, here's the definition, it's in, in your notes there, I think. Someone who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist. He believes in God, but he lives his life in such a way that as if God does not exist. So intellectual atheists, they say they don't believe in God. They don't believe that God exists. But the practical atheist believes there is a God, but he behaves as if there is none. He believes that he's just not going to be held accountable. He lives his life as if it doesn't matter he acts as if God is not watching or seeing everything that he's doing and that one day he's not going to give an account for his life. He knows there's a God. He just doesn't care. <laughs> because really he's become his what? His own God. He's become his own God. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. I want to go about life my own, my own way. There, there are more practical atheists in the church across the board than we care to admit. People who come on Sunday, 
They sing, they celebrate, they raise their hands, they praise God. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. And then they walk out those doors and they never acknowledge God on a daily basis again until next Sunday. They don't live their life as if God rules. They don't live their life as if God reigns over every portion of their life. They only go to God usually when they need something. They need to be rescued from an issue or something happens. Now I really need to go to God. But for the most part, they come in, they sing, they celebrate, and then they live out there in the world as if it's all up to them. As if God doesn't even exist. If it's going to be, it's going to be me. Have you ever heard that? If it's going to be, it's going to be me. That's practical atheism. That's practical atheism. That's believing there is a God, but behaving and living as if he doesn't exist or that he doesn't see what you're doing or that you will not one day be accountable to him for your life. This is what he's talking about here. Now, you may be asking me, how do you know that? How do you know that David... It's not talking about intellectual atheism. That's all I've ever heard from this verse. Where do you get this, pastor? Why do you believe he's talking about practical atheism and not intellectual atheism? Why do you think he's talking about people who believe in God but behave and act and live their lives as if he doesn't exist? How do you know that? That's a great question. That's a good question. Well, did you know that the word here in the text for fool, there is no, the fool has said in his heart, the fool, the one who believes there is a God but acts as if there is none. Do you know that in the original language in Hebrew, that word for fool is nabal, N-A-B-A-L, or nabal, nabal. So you could say, the nabal says in his heart, no God. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, if you study the Scriptures, if you're maybe a reader, particularly of the Old Testament, when I said that word, Nabal, your ears should have perked up. You should have said, I've heard that somewhere before. It's somewhat familiar to you because there is a person, there's a man in the Old Testament whose name is Nabal. Can you imagine? They named him Fool. I mean, think about it. He's just a little baby. Yeah, okay, we're going to call him Fool. Wow. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now remember, who is this psalm written by? David. David, the author of this psalm, crosses paths with this man called Nabal. All the way back in 1 Samuel 25. Now you can read all that later. I'm just going to give you the gist of it this morning to help us because we don't have time to go into the whole big story, so I'll kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of what happened. Samuel comes along, the prophet Samuel comes along, and what does he do? He anoints David. God says, anoint him king of Israel. He says, okay, I'm going to anoint him king of Israel. And he does so. The only problem was there was already a king, King Saul. And so the current king, Saul, had been disobedient to God, his heart the Bible says, turned away from God for years. He's been rebellious. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to pull the kingdom away from Saul, and I'm going to give it uh, to uh, uh, 
Okay? And so what happens? Here, Saul gets kind of ticked off, which you can understand. Right? He's the king. And now, wait a minute, this is being taken away from me. It becomes very political in nature, you might think. He doesn't like that. And so what does he do? He starts to chase down David for years. He's chasing David all over the place. And David has some men that are, are supportive of David because everybody knows that the prophet has kind of anointed David as the next king. So they know that he is the future king. We just got to deal with this current king. And the current king is trying to hunt down the future king and kill him. Why? Because he still wants to be king. Kind of makes sense. But God's protecting David. So he hunts him all over the place. He can't, can't catch him. He has opportunities, and, and God always basically helps David get away. Well, David kind of becomes a, you might say like a Robin Hood. You know, he's got his berry man, a band of men, and he's out there doing good throughout Israel. He's protecting people. He's helping people. He's, he's helping people protect their livestock, all these kind of things. And so Samuel, the prophet, has said God has anointed David. David's going around trying to get away from Saul. Saul's trying to hunt him down. He's doing all this good to people. And one of those people is Nabal. He, David and his men have protected this man. And, and this man is very wealthy. He has massive amounts of sheep and goats. And what David does is he protects Nabal along with his men, and, and he protects his wealth, and he actually provides Nabal the ability to keep on growing his wealth. So he's really enabling Nabal to get richer and richer and richer. Well, one day, David comes along, and he realizes, you know, I want to have a little celebration with my men that are with me on this adventure. And so uh, he pulls aside a couple of his men in the army, and he says, hey, go over to Nabal's house. He's got more than he could ever even use and tell him we want to throw a little party we want to throw a little kind of a retreat thing and just you know have some food a feast for for you guys and celebrate and uh and tell him you know hey if, if you would be uh, so kind as as to extend your generosity to me and my men because after all we've been, been protecting you for years and we've allowed you to grow this you know uh sheep herd into a lot, a lot, a lot. You have more than you could ever use. So could you just spare a little bit for, for my men and I, and, and we'll come over and you can kind of throw a little party for us. Well, look down at 1 Samuel 25, 2 and 3. Um, it says, David rose, he went down the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. This is Nabal he's talking about. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And look how it describes them. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. <laughs> you know any couples like that? <laughs> all, all the men are going, oh, we, we could probably <laughs> line up like that. You know? And then it says this, he, he was a a Calabite, and David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David, what's he do? He sends these ten young men over, and all the way down in verse 9, it says, when David's young men came, they said all that David had told him. They, they said what, what David told him to tell Nabal. And then they waited. 
So they told Nabal, hey, we, we're going to have a party here, and we want you to guys help us out. We've been protecting you for years, and your wealth is largely a part of us protecting you. Nobody was able to come against you, so if you could put together some, a little feast for us, we'd really appreciate it. They waited. In verse 10, look at what Nabal says. And Nabal answered David's servants. Look at what he says. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Now, he did not deny David's existence. He's not saying, I don't, I don't think David even exists. What are you talking about? He's not saying that. Why? Because everybody knew who David was. How did everybody know who David was? Who did David kill when he was just a little shepherd boy, right? Goliath. Everybody knew who David, David was, this little shepherd boy. They'd fallen in love with David. They used to sing songs about David. Remember? They sang a song. The Bible tells us, Saul has killed his hundred, but David has killed his, what? Thousands. So they were really lifting David over their own king, Saul. This is what caused Saul to be ticked off. <laughs> Sent him in a rage. That's why he wanted David out of the picture. He was jealous over the nation of Israel who really passionately fell in love with this little shepherd boy. And now he, David has grown and he's become a wonderful man of God, amazing man of God, and a great soldier in the army. And everybody knew that, hey, Samuel already said David's going to be the king. So they didn't really have a whole lot of loyalty left for Saul. He wasn't doing too well. But when, when Nabal says, who is David? He's not saying, I don't believe David even exists. He's a figment of your imagination. He's not saying that. He's not denying the existence of David. What's he doing? He's denying the authority of David. He's not denying his existence. He's denying his authority. He's basically saying, you know, I don't know who you guys think you are or who your David is, but I am not under you. I'm not the servant of you. I'm not submitting myself to you. Forget it. No David for me. No David. That's what he's saying. Now remember, in that day, when you denied the presence of and the authority of the king of Israel, what were you doing? You were denying the authority and the presence of who? Of God. They were God's rightful uh, representative. And so when Nabal says, no David for me, he's literally saying, no God for me. And now here David comes along years later, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this psalm. And he says, the Nabal, the fool, the Nabal in his heart, no God, no God. He's not talking about intellectual atheism. He's talking about someone who knows God exists and yet he lives as if it doesn't matter. He doesn't need God. He doesn't want God. He doesn't love God. He won't submit to God. He won't surrender to God. He's a practical atheist. You say, well, wait a minute. What happened at the end of the story? Well, I'll, I'll ruin it for you, okay? Here's what happens. David gets really ticked off when his men go back and go, hey, no deal. He said, who are you? Who do you think you are? David gets ticked off. He goes into a rage. And he's making it a beeline over there 
to do some very <laughs> bad things to Nabal. <laughs> he was going to tear this guy up. I mean, he was ticked off. And what happens, Abigail, who is Nabal's wife, who, by the way, eventually becomes David's wife. <laughs> the Bible's kind of juicy. I mean, you read some of these stories, and you're like, wow, this is like something I'd see on TV, right? Um, he intercedes, or she intercedes for, for her husband, Nabal. And she, she has an encounter with David, and she says, you know what, I know he's a very bad man. He's very terrible. He's ugly. He's nasty. I hate him, but he's still my husband. So she tells David, hey, why don't you just let God take care of him? Just let God deal with it. Don't do this. This isn't right, what you're going to do to him. And so it tells us what happens in verse 37 and 38 of 1 Samuel 25. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, so obviously he was also a drunk, <laughs> his wife, Abigail, told him these things. In other words, she told him his encounter with David and all this stuff. And look at what happens. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. What does that mean? Basically, it means he had a heart attack, a stroke, and he's paralyzed. Can't move. Probably could still hear, couldn't communicate. And then verse 38, it says, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Wow. It's interesting that God dealt with the fool. He dealt with Nabal. But not only did he deal with the fool, what's interesting to me is that he dealt with the fool physically. In the same place that he was messed up spiritually. Where? His heart. His heart. See, the fool doesn't say with his mouth there is no God. I don't think there's anybody here that would, you know, leave here and go, ah, there is no God, there is no God. No, you, even if you believe that, you probably wouldn't be that demonstrative. Now, there are people that are, but for the most part, you don't do that. You're not going to go around saying that. But you know what? There are many people here even this morning that in your heart, you're saying, no, God. No, God. No, God, in my marriage. No, God, in my finances. No, God, in my giving. No, God, in my serving. No, God, in my decision-making. No, God. And then we come here together and we sing praises to God. But then we walk out those doors and we live as if, no thanks God, till next Sunday. And God deals with Nabal physically in the same spot that fools struggle spiritually. And that is in their hearts. It's an amazing, unbelievable story. Now, if I asked you this question, what's the opposite of foolishness in the Bible? What would you say? Wisdom, right? Hopefully you'd say that. I mean, if you don't want to be a fool, the opposite of being a fool is being what? Wise. Well, Psalm 111, verse 10 says what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's that mean? It means the awe of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. 
the acknowledgement of the Lord, the realization of just how big and unbelievably powerful and glorious God is, and yet on the other hand, how small and helpless and fragile we are. See, that's the beginning of being a wise person and not a fool. If a person says, you know what, God, I don't care how big you are. I don't care how bad you think you are. I'm going to do my own thing. You know what God says to that? Nabal, fool. You're a fool. The foolish person is the one who lacks reverence for God. The foolish person is the one who lacks a place for God in their life. And God says, you know what, I'm going to have to deal with you. Hopefully now you understand a little bit better the first half of the text. <laughs> and how that we've gotten it wrong so many ways for so long. So David doesn't stop here. Look at the second part of this first verse here. You see the defiant heart in the fools, but also we see the depraved life of the fools. The depraved life of a fool. He says there in verse 1, he says, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. See, the thing you have to understand is the defiant heart, David says, always, always, always leads to a depraved life. The defiant heart always leads to a depraved life. Because whatever is in your heart, what happens is, what's it, what's it do? It comes out in your life. It comes out in your life. Remember what, what, what Jesus said in the New Testament? He said, out of a person's heart, right? Things of life come. How many times have you said something? You say, well, you know, I, I didn't really mean what I said. You know what God says to that? Liar. <laughs> Liar. You meant exactly what you said. <laughs> because it came out of your heart. If it wasn't in your heart, you wouldn't have said it. I mean, doesn't that make sense? doesn't just come out of thin air. But you speak out of the heart. And we've all done that. We've all done that. We've said things, boy, I wish I could take that back. And then we end up saying something stupid like, well, I didn't really mean that. That's such a stupid response. A, a biblical response would be, say, you know what, I'm sorry. I apologize for what I just said. That was wrong. That would be the right way to respond. Not, oh, I didn't mean it. Because you didn't mean it. Because you said it. Maybe you didn't even realize what was in your heart, but it was there because it came out. And so David here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what does he say? He says, a defiant heart always leads to a depraved life. Always, 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 always. Why, you say? Because out of the heart a person lives. Out of the heart a person speaks. Out of the heart comes relationship, comes interaction. He says there in the second part of verse 1, he says, they are corrupt. The fool talks about God, no God, there is no God, and then God speaks about the fool. Turns the tables. And he says, they're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none, he says, who does good. So what does God do? God takes what we could call spiritual x-ray, spiritual x-ray of, of the heart of a fool, 
And he says, you know what's in there? Corruption. Corruption. It's absolutely bankrupt of anything that is righteous, of anything that is holy, of anything that is perfect or good. Our hearts are bankrupt. That's what that, that really means. And because it's bankrupt, because it's the source that, of all this corruption that comes out of us, if anything comes out of your heart and everything that comes out is sourced where? It's sourced in corruption because your heart is corrupt. He says they do abominable things. There is none who does good. Now here's where people have an issue with this. Here's where people stop and they say, well, wait a minute here, hold on. Um, when you hear that, there is none that are good. There's no not one. That, that, should, that should click with you if you're familiar with the Bible. You should say, yeah, I heard that somewhere before. I mean, even if, if, if the pages of your Old Testament are stuck together because you never read the Old Testament, hopefully those words sound familiar because they're in the New Testament, right? They're in the New Testament. Where are they at? They're in Romans, thank you. They're in Romans. So Paul takes Psalm 14 and basically he, he just plagiarizes the whole thing and puts it in his book of Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because this is where it came from. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, and we're very familiar with this passage. But it helps us understand really um, what you would call practical atheism. And that, that this is not a head problem. It's not a head problem. Practical atheism is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. See, it's not that people can't believe. It's that they won't believe. And so the problem is where there is no God, you could say there is no good. Where there is someone who has no God, there is no goodness there. And this is what Paul has, has picked up on in Romans chapter 1, because he's literally taking Psalm 14, it's in his mind and in his heart, and he's building it out. And look at what it says in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They don't exalt the truth. They run from the truth. They suppress the truth. I've used the illustration before. It's kind of like trying to take a ball in the pool and hold it under the water. It's difficult to do, but if you balance yourself just right, you can, you can do that. This is what they're trying to do with God's truth, suppress the truth. And then it says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how did he show it to them? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since what? The creation of the world in the things that have been made. So guess what? They are without excuse, it says. 
Why? They know there's a God. They know there's a God. They're choosing to live as if there is none. It tells us so much in verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, there it is, hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. Nabal. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Verse 2 says, Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What happens there in Romans 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the depraved life of a fool, of someone who says there is no God, and I, I'm not going to live as if I believe there is a God, but I'm not going to live like He even exists. Well, let's move on in the psalm. You've seen the defiant heart, the depraved life. Look at the disturbing revelation about fools. In verses 2 to 3, the disturbing revelation about fools. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Here, here Paul, uh, here David says down deep in his, his heart here that, you know what, um, this, is, this is something that, that is very troubling. This corruption has gone to the utter depth of their heart because they acknowledge God, but they live as if he doesn't exist. And in Romans 1, this is what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, look, these people know down deep in their heart there is a God. They know that. All they have to do is look around. Just look around. They see creation. They see the majesty. They see the sky. They see the creation. And you know what? The normal person, unless you're nuts, would say, well, this just couldn't have happened. Right? I mean, something must have caused this. Now, there's a lot of fools that have convinced themselves that this somehow just happened. This thing called the world and called life and called bodies and, and everything that interacts, it's, it just happened. It came out of some primordial soup and there was a big bang and just kind of came up on the shore and then one thing led to another and then billions and billions and billions and billions of years later, we have what we know today as the world. They've convinced themselves this is true. But they know it's not, <laughs> deep down in their heart. That's why they're trying to suppress the truth. Maybe they've convinced themselves to believe that, but God says, you know what, I planted my DNA deep inside you, and you know, you know. I remember... It just popped in my head the, this, the, the movie The Christmas Story. And I think it's the father and Ralphie are having a conversation. And 
he's telling his sons, you know, you better be good because Christmas is coming. You know, and I think one of the kids goes, you know, well, how, does, how does Santa know that whether I'm good or bad? And his dad goes, he knows. He always knows, right? God knows. God knows what's going on. Um, all you have to do is look around. You see his glory everywhere. They can know God. All they have to do is open their eyes. They can know his divine nature, Romans tells us. They can know his eternal powers. You don't even have to read the Bible to do this. You don't have to find a preacher. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to go to church. All you have to do is look around, and you can see God's majesty. And that will lead you to more truth, obviously, in his word that will lead you to salvation. Have you ever been to Mount Rushmore? Any of you? Mount Rushmore, where they have the, the big mountain, and they got the four presidents' faces up there, remember? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and uh, the guy in the end is, is Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. But if you've ever visited Mount Rushmore, I was there when I was just probably like 12, and uh, If you've ever been there, I don't think there was ever a time when you're standing there looking at the grandeur of this place, you're seeing these giant faces, these giant heads of our former presidents up on the side of this mountain. Beautiful, just majestic sight. It's incredible. I don't think anybody's ever stood there and said, wow, you know what? I think just if given enough time and enough rain, maybe I mix some acid rain in there and some hail and some lightning, wind, if we just had enough years, I'm sure that's how this happened. It just took a long time. And these faces just appeared on the side of Mount Rushmore, out of this rock. I don't think, I mean, I think if you did say something like that, you'd be wheeled off to the, 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 the crazy place, right? I mean, because anybody would, that's an improper conclusion. You have to believe that somebody actually went up there on that mountain and what? Etched those faces, carved those faces into that rock. You're not going to believe it just happened naturally. Well, how much more when you look around and you see the grandeur of God's creation? How can you possibly conclude after billions and billions and billions of years and everything just kind of fit right and then just by chance, here's what happened? That's a lie. That's a lie. So God says, I've, I've pressed knowledge of me in them through my creation. They have the ability to know my divinity, my power, and my eternity. They know. But the fool, the fool, basically, um, you know, he says, nope, no God for me. Let there be no God. And so Paul is building this argument you may not know who personally was up there working on the side of that mountain in Mount Rushmore, but you know there were people. You know that there were men. You know that they were hired to do the job. It just didn't naturally appear. See, it's not that God is not speaking, beloved. It's that the fools don't listen to God. God is speaking every day through his word, through creation. It's not that they cannot believe. It's, it's that they refuse to believe. They've chosen not to believe. And what's the result? Well, Paul says it plainly back in Romans 24, 25, 31. It says, so God abandoned them. Wow. 
That's not good. I mean, when, when, when the God of creation abandons you, that's not a good thing. It's never good to be abandoned by God. What did he abandon them to? It says to do whatever shameful things their heart desire. They traded the truth for God, about God for a lie. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, and yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, the Bible says in Romans that they even encourage others to partake as well in their devious acts. Why? Because a defiant heart always leads to a depraved life. Always. If you want to know how in the world our country got to where it's at today over the past 200 plus years, how did it become so defiant and dangerous to live in our country? There was just a shooting here the other, the other night down in Red Morton Park. All you have to do is trace our history. Trace our rejection of God, our rejection of the gospel, our rejection of Christ, our rejection of prayer, our rejection of anything that has to do with anything outside of ourselves. Because we want us to be the highlight. We did this. It's all about us. All you have to do is trace our history. And the more you get away from God, the more defiant, the more devilish, the more dangerous, the more deviant our society becomes. And we live in a depraved society. Why? Because we're living in a godless society. We're living in a society that does not acknowledge God. That's just the reality of it. I mean, it's easy to point our fingers at government and say, well, you know, they, they took prayer out of schools. That's a lie. That's a lie. You can still pray in school if you want to pray. I'm sure when you guys have tests, if you're younger and you go to school, you probably pray all the time. <laughs> now, yeah, technically they took public prayer out. Let's see, we bought that and we said, oh, well, I can't pray. I can't pray. You can still pray. See, I'm telling you, over time, what we've done as believers is we become practical atheists. We've become godless. Not the people outside the church, the people inside the church. And you're here and you're saying, well, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> well, hold on a second. This is the next step. See, God's not talking about just certain kinds of people. He's talking to all people. He's talking to all people. He's pointing out the wicked, the corrupt, the defiant, and he's talking to everybody. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. In Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's anyone who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Do you see any parentheses there after that? Like, well, parentheses, except Steve. <laughs> I, I don't see any parentheses in that text. No, it says everybody, not even one is good. There's no exceptions. When David says he look, the Lord looks down from heaven, what is it? It's a, it's a euphemism. Not to a specific time in a specific place. It is the eternal God who is looking eternally at all humanity, at everyone, everywhere, and he's searching throughout all eternity. 
throughout the whole earth. And he says, I can't even find one person who seeks truth. I can't find one person who seeks after me. I can't find one person who does anything good, anything righteous, anything worth anything. No, not one. Guess who that includes? That includes us. That includes us, beloved. See, this is not an indictment against people who just refuse to believe. It's an indictment against all humanity. This is an indictment of you. It's an indictment of me. There is none. They are all corrupt. says the same thing in Romans 3. Romans 3.10, as it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. <laughs> Paul just repeats what David said in Psalm 14. And David and Paul agree on this. Everyone, everywhere, for all time, every person who is ever born is either a current or a former fool. Every person is either a current or a former fool. It's not talking about the past or the future. It's, a, it's talking about all time. What, the, what this means for us, basically, is this. We, we all start fools. <laughs> we all start as fools. We all begin. Remember Psalm 51 where David says, I was born in what? Iniquity. I was conceived in what? Sin. The moment you were conceived within your mother, you're, guess what? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. I guarantee you, Kaino and Mariana, when you have your little baby girl this fall, you're, you're not going to have to teach her how to sin. You're not going to have to teach her how to be selfish. You're not going to have to teach her to, how to bite you or anything. She's just going to do it naturally. Why? Because she's a little sinner. Just naturally, she's going to be a little sinner. We all come from that. You don't teach kids how to lie or be deceptive. Why? Because it's in their source. It's from their heart. They are sinners. That's why you need to make sure that you're raising them to understand that. Raising your children to understand their need of a Savior. Just because they're born in a Christian home, that doesn't mean anything to God. Doesn't mean a thing. I remember as a youth pastor, usually it was the parents who were dragging the teenagers into my office. And I used to tell them, you know what? You need to start young. You're starting at a point where you're, you're, your son, your daughter's taller than you are. You got a problem. You can't make up for lost time here. They're already bent in the wrong direction. Why? Because their heart is defiant of God from the very beginning. All of ours are. From the very beginning, our hearts are selfish. We have to realize, apart from Christ, I will always want what's best for me. Outside of Christ. I will always want what's best for me. Not you, me. Why? Because my heart is selfish. Now we look at that and there are people we think that are exceptions to that. 
well, you know, I know my neighbors, you know, they don't go to church and they're not Christians, but they're pretty good people. No, they're not. Maybe on the outside they are. But the Bible says your heart is wicked, desperately wicked. From the very beginning, we call this, in theology, we call it what? Total depravity. There's no good in you that God sees. None. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be, right? It's not saying that. I mean, how many of you here this morning would agree that if you wanted to, you could be a lot worse than you are? I think we all would agree with that, right? We could choose to be really bad people when we want to be. Why? Because in your heart, you could be worse. It's only by the grace of God, potentially, that you don't do some of those things. God's grace in your life. We have to understand something. A good act, a good deed, it takes two things. It takes two things. One, it takes the action to be good. A good act or a good deed, first of all, it has to be a good action. But there's another level to this. For, for something to be actually a good deed, you have to look at the source, or you have to look at what you would call the motive. That has to be pure as well, right? See, we judge things on what we see. We only see the act. We can't see the motive. Why someone's doing what they do. We never see that. We don't see what's in a person's heart. I mean, if a, if a Boy Scout takes a sweet, elderly, wonderful, senior citizen lady across the street, we would look at that and say, boy, look at that good boy, that Boy Scout doing that great deed. But what if she didn't want to go? <laughs> well, it changes the scenario a little bit, right? Come on, Granny, you're going with me. Maybe his motive is to get the next badge. So, hey, I'm just going to drag you across the street so I can say, yeah, I did it. Maybe he wants a pat on the back. Maybe he wants some money from her. Maybe he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. But all we're seeing is this young boy take this little old lady across the street. See, there's different levels of outward badness, but there is nothing, no source, no heart that is always having a motive of good 100% of the time. Impossible. Everything we do, we don't know why they're doing it. What God says is this, I know what they're doing, and it's not good, it's for themselves. Because their hearts are desperately wicked. Every good deed done apart from Christ is always for my betterment. I'm looking out for number one. It might benefit someone, but I'm doing it for me. Any good deeds, any righteous deeds, are not just on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. And so that's why we would say that there is nobody who's good. No one does anything good, not even one, it says. It says no one seeks God. They, want that, they, they seek what they want from God, but they don't seek God for who He is. 
See, it doesn't say that they're not seeking the peace of God. It doesn't say that they're not seeking the forgiveness of God. It doesn't even say they're not seeking the healing of God. There's people all over the place seeking those things. But no one seeks God just for God's sake. That's what he's saying. Many times I recall conversations with people who've gone through kind of a tumultuous Christian life. And many of those people said, you know what, Pastor, I've tried God once. I tried him once. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for my sick mom that she wouldn't die. And I prayed that God would show up and I thought, boy, this is going to be incredible healing. And guess what? She died. Just like everybody else died. And I just gave up on God. Of course they weren't wanting God. They didn't want God in their life. They were wanting healing. They, they just wanted God as the conduit to try to get what they wanted. I'm not saying people shouldn't call out to God in times of need. Absolutely, we should. But what I'm saying is this. God says, no one seeks me just because they want me. They want to know me. They want to know me for my sake, for God's sake. Everyone seeks God for their own sake. And isn't it, isn't it awesome that our God says, you know what, I'm going to seek you for your sake. This is the gracious God we have. I'm going to seek you for my glory, God says. It's a wonderful thing. So we have to understand this passage. It's not about those, those bad people in the world, those atheists out there who you know, just need to get a clue. They just need to believe in God. No, this is about practical atheists, like all of us at times, who say we believe in God, but we act as if he doesn't even exist, or at sometimes he doesn't even matter. No wonder, no wonder the unsaved world looks at the church and says, you know what, you're no different than me. And you want me to believe in your God? Really? When problems happen, and so many practical atheist lives, they do the exact same thing the world does. When, when finances get thin, a lot of times, you know what, they just go about it the same way the world does. And the world looks at that and goes, where's the difference? So the disturbing revelation here is this is us. This is talking about us. Now, it would really be unfortunate if the psalm just ended there. <laughs> You're all awful. You're all terrible. You're all fools. Have a nice week. See you next week. Can't do that to you. That would be crazy, right? So he starts with the bad news, and then he, he ends with the good news. Look at, look at this. There is good, good news. A divine hope for fools. A divine hope for fools. Not just a defiant heart, depraved life, disturbed revelation but a divine hope he says in verses four to seven they have no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread do not call upon the lord they're in great terror for god is with the generation of the righteous you say wait a minute he's been talking about how horrible people are and stuff and then he brings up this this generation of righteous oh wait a minute 
I thought we were all bad. Well, we are, but there's two camps. There's two camps. There's the unrighteous and the righteous. Very simple, simple division, but that's what it is. And we just have to make sure that we all start in the unrighteous category. So how do we get from the camp of the unrighteous into the camp of the righteous? Because there's only two groups, unrighteous and righteous people. How do we get to the righteous one? I think we all want to be in the righteous category. Well, we already know we, we can't do it by seeking after God because it says nobody does that. We already know that it's not left up to us to do something good because we can't do that or something great. We can't do that. We know it can't be just us because we're totally depraved and we have no hope outside of an outside source to rescue us. See, this is why verse 7 of Psalm 14 is so important. It's so important. What's he say? Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, if you don't understand, especially in the Psalms, what Zion is, you're going to get in a lot of trouble because you're going to see it over and over and over and over again. What is Zion? Zion is the holy hill in Israel in which the temple was built. That's what it's referring to. The temple was where, what? The presence of God was back in. That's where God dwelt in the temple. God would come down and he would fill up the Holy of Holies within the temple. And this is where God's people would come to worship him. And they came with their trusty little psalm songbook and they would come. Did you know that in the Old Testament you couldn't just sing to God anywhere? You couldn't do it. Did you know that you couldn't just pray anywhere you wanted to? It wasn't allowed. If you were to pray, if you were to sing to God, if you were to approach God, you know what you had to do? You had to go to the temple where God's presence was. And guess what? You couldn't just march into the temple like you came into this church. You couldn't do that. This was you were entering the presence of God. You had to go through a mediator. You had to go through somebody between you and God. You had to have somebody run interference for you, you might say. And the priest, who was the mediator, would take your sacrifice before you could pray, before you could sing to God, before you could worship God. You had to bring a sacrifice. You had to have the sacrifice. The priest would have to sacrifice. He would have to bludgeon to kill an animal and the animal's blood had to be spilled because it represented the penalty for the sins of the people. And God dealt with sin in the sacrificial system. In this case, the sacrifice of an animal. So God said, hey, before you come to me and sing and celebrate and do all that stuff, before you come to me and pray, guess what? Something has to die. Something has to die. Because I need to pour out my wrath on sin. You can't, and this is what we've lost in, in the modern day church movement, you can't come before a holy God 
as an unholy person. You can't come before a holy God as an unholy person. And yet our churches are filled, our churches strive to fill themselves with unholy people who don't know God and then call it a worship service. Unholy people cannot worship God. They cannot. They don't know God. So they would go up and they would sacrifice and literally what God would say is, okay, you know what? We're going to meet over the sacrifice. That's where you'll meet me. When the sacrifice is made, then you will meet me over the sacrifice. Because without the spilling of blood, there is no remission for sin. There's no way to deal with sin without blood being spilled. Without the blood, there is no forgiveness. So God says, let's meet over the sacrifice. Well, what is David saying? He said, hey, salvation comes from Zion. Comes from this temple hill. This holy hill. And remember what Jesus said when he was here on earth. See, Jesus comes along in his ministry and he points at the temple and he says, you know what? You tear the temple down and guess what? In three days, I'm going to build it back up again. And the religious people of Jesus' day, what did they do? They lost their minds. Right? They, they went nuts. What are you talking about? You know how long it took to build this temple? They freaked out. You can't do that. You can't tear this temple down. This is where we worship. They went nuts. Of course, Jesus was talking not about the physical temple, but he was talking about what? His body. He was talking about his body. What he says is, you tear this temple down. I am the temple. You tear this temple down. I will build it back up in three days. He wanted them to know, I am where, Jesus was saying, I am where the presence of God is now. He was saying, I am the one where God will meet his people. I am the sacrifice. I am the priest. And by the way, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I am the one who is the temple and it is me that God will say, come and meet me over my sacrifice. What is David doing in Psalm 14? He's pointing to the Messiah. He's pointing to Christ. This is prophetic. He's pointing to that holy hill. And he says, I pray that salvation comes out of Zion, from the holy hill, from the temple. And Jesus shows up and says, guess what, guys? I'm the temple. I am the temple. I am the person on earth where God's Glory dwells. And I am the one that will, on that holy hill called Calvary, I will sacrifice myself on behalf of the people. And God will say over the sacrifice of the cross and into the resurrection of the tomb, come, let's meet over the sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, without the blood of Christ covering your sin, you cannot worship God. You cannot pray. You cannot meet with God. Because an unholy person cannot meet with a holy God. Very simple. So our God says, come meet me at the sacrifice. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. What do we do in church? When we gather together in the New Testament, what do we do? We talk about 
Who? Jesus. We sing to Jesus. We pray to Jesus. We talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because we're, we're meeting over the very one who is the temple. I mean, how crazy is it today that you can go into a church and you don't even hear anything about Jesus? What are they doing? Well, guess what? They're not meeting over the sacrifice, that's for sure. They're not meeting on the holy hill, the hill called Calvary. I mean, if you don't hear anything, hear this. You know what? Yes. You know what? You're a fool. I'm a fool. Let's establish that. You're an able, I'm an able. <laughs> but here is the grace of God. Who says, you know what? I'm going to come for you. And I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot do it because your motives are bad. But God says, my motives are pure. And I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to sacrifice myself on your behalf. And all that I want you to do in response is confess. I'm a sinner. I'm a fool, God. I'm a Nabal. And if you don't save me, God, I'll be lost forever. But guess what? I'm trusting in you, God. I'm believing. I'm surrendering. I'm giving you all that I have, which, granted, it's not a lot. It's small. But by faith, I'm asking you to cover my sin with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. I want you to meet me at the sacrifice. I want that salvation that comes from Zion. You see what David is doing here? He's pointing to Christ. What did Paul do? He pointed to Christ in Romans. What are we doing here today? We're pointing you to Christ. The amazing thing of this whole thing is that God would take a fool like you, a fool like me. And he says, listen, be my fool. Be my fool for Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm a fool, but I'm a fool for Christ. When it comes to our sinful flesh, we are so depraved. How do you get rid of this? How do you deal with this? Only Jesus can transform it. Only Jesus can change you. That's why you have to be born again. You can't clean yourself up. It's too big of a mess. Too big of a mess. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. He says, this can only happen through the sacrifice of Christ. If you're here today and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, please realize you can't transform yourself. Only Jesus can transform you. But the good news is, once you come to Christ by faith, He gives you a new heart. He justifies you. He saves you. But it doesn't end there. He gives you also the Holy Spirit that helps you to continue to defeat the flesh. Defeat sin in your life. We all struggle with sin. You'd be lying if you said you didn't. But he wants us to know that it's by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And if you do that, you will live. See, when God saves you, what do you do? You become a, a call it a, a sin fighter. <laughs> you become a sin fighter. You don't become sinless. You don't become perfect. There's not a person in this room or even in the hearing of this message today that is perfect. You don't arrive to a certain level of sinlessness. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We all deal with sin on a daily basis, but you know what? We, now we have the Holy Spirit. We can fight against sin. 
See, positionally in Christ, what are you? You're perfect. You are holy. You are set apart by God, by the sacrifice of Christ. But guess what? Practically speaking, you're still struggling with sin, just like I struggle with sin on a daily basis. And so he makes you a fighter, a sin fighter, not sinless. Should you sin less? Yes. <laughs> Hopefully you're not sinning more. You should be sinning less. But you're not sinless. But one day, one day, we will be in heaven and we'll be free from our sinful flesh. In heaven, we'll be free of it. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, it says, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. And Paul says we shall all be, what? Changed. We will be forever holy in the presence of our Lord and Savior. One of the evidences, if you're struggling with kind of your own faith and whether you're a believer or not, I think one of the strong evidences that you really belong to God through Christ is simply this, that you cannot wait to get to heaven to get away from sin. You can't wait. Why? Because you want to be with God. But you also want to be away from sin. Why? Because you're sick of the fight. You're sick of the draw. You're sick of the temptation. And it's such a struggle daily for us. Can't wait to get to heaven because heaven is full of God and it's absent of sin. That's how you know that while the glory of God is truly dwelling on the inside of you because you hate, you despise sin. It's not that you don't fall into it sometimes. We all do. But you know what? You hate it. You hate it. What you see is justification. You see sanctification. You see glorification. We're justified by faith in Christ. We're sanctified through the Spirit. We're becoming more and more like Christ. And one day, beloved, we will be glorified. We have to understand, I've been saved. I'm being saved. But one day, praise God, I will be fully saved. And in His presence for all of eternity. Are you a current or a former fool? You're either one or the other. Are you someone who says, I, I believe in God, but live as if He doesn't exist the rest of the week? That's a fool. That's a nabo. Are you someone who says that, you know what, I used to be a fool. I used to be someone who was focused on myself continuously, but guess what? Now I'm focused on Christ. Now I live for the audience of one. He has redeemed me, and guess what? I'm fighting sin with everything I have within me. And I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And I know that, I know that, I know that nothing, no good thing in me apart from Christ exists. But I've received His gift of salvation by faith through His grace. And you know what? I meant it. My point is simply this. Don't, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would minister these words to our hearts. Lord, it's hard to acknowledge our own downfalls. It's hard to acknowledge that sometimes we are fools before you, that we do act in a way, even though we know you, we're your children, we, we want to praise you, we, we acknowledge you, but Lord, sometimes we live as if you don't even exist. Lord, 
Help us to repent of that. Help us to turn away from that, to acknowledge that. And Lord, to ask you to, to forgive us of our own independent spirit. Lord, that we would be utterly dependent upon your grace, upon your spirit, upon your mercy each day. That we would live for the audience of one, that being you. And Lord, that we would be motivated more than anything to make sure that our walk, our, our talk, our thoughts, our actions are pleasing to you and you alone. Because everything else will take care of itself if we just focus on that one thing. And Lord, we pray today if there's anyone here who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I don't know what you're waiting for. Just look around. <laughs> look around and see what God has done in the lives of people in this room. This is real. This is not some fanciful story. This is a very real thing. You're, you're, you're dealing with your eternal soul. And whether you're young or old, you don't know when death's calling card will come. But trust me, it will come. And you don't want to enter into eternity without knowing Christ. You don't want to do that. And so why not cry out to Christ today? Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Change my heart. Help me be dependent upon you for your salvation. Help me to stop trying to save myself. Help me stop to try to clean up the outside when, when my heart is just rotting. Because, Lord, you say you'll give me a new heart. I pray you do that even today. Make that your prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.